chapter 5. <clears throat> it was a blessing. Dan and the choir, thank you. That was a blessed time of worship this morning, a, a wonderful um, chance to sing old beloved hymns. Let's now turn our attention to, to God's Word, Luke chapter 5. This is our 22nd week in Luke. You may think we're only in chapter 5, but we have covered so far 214 verses. So we are actually keeping our 10 verse a week goal. We're doing that. Just Luke's got some long chapters. We'll cover another 11 this morning. And as we come to the text this morning, I want to draw your question, uh, attention to a question. What does it mean that Jesus is Lord? What does that mean? Probably no creedal declaration goes back earlier in the Christian church than the declaration that Jesus is Lord. Paul says in Romans chapter eight, you, you, in chapter 10, you know this, that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We know that in Philippians 2, eventually that creed, that declaration will be found on the lips of all, whether they're in heaven or on earth or under the earth. Even those condemned to hell will confess, according to Philippians 2, because God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord." The glory of God the Father. What, is, what does that mean? Uh, if you're like me, you probably have not had many lords in your life. I, I think the term in, in Jesus' day was more familiar, the notion of, a, of an absolute sovereign, the notion of a um, king or ruler. But in this passage, in Luke chapter 5, we are going to see what it means for Jesus to be Lord, specifically in the life of Peter. As you recall, so far in our study of Luke, Luke has spent two chapters giving the, the birth narratives of, of Jesus and John the Baptist. And then in chapter 3, we get to see a snapshot of John's ministry and then him passing the baton to Jesus, as it were, as he takes over in his ministry. Chapter 3 then ending with the formal introduction of our main character, Jesus, with his genealogy. And chapter 4 begins with the temptation of Jesus, and then the rest of the chapter is, is given to looking at, at the, the general nature of Jesus' ministry. And the general nature of Jesus' ministry in chapter 14, with that inclusio, where Luke as an author begins and ends with the same theme, in 4, 14 and 15, the report about him went throughout the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And then, Jesus, when the, those in Capernaum want him to stick around and stay, he says, I must preach, in 43, the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose, and he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. And what characterizes the rest of chapter 4 are two quintessential Sabbaths. We see a Sabbath of rejection and a Sabbath of reception. We see him in his hometown, open up the scroll of Isaiah. He reads it. He identifies himself as the referent, the Messiah, the Lord's anointed, commissioned to preach. And from that, we, we get an idea of what Jesus understands his own mission to be. And you remember in, in chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, where he quotes the Isaiah scroll, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, 
because he has anointed me, and remember that word for anointed is the Hebrew Messiah, Messiah. What has he anointed me to do? To proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So there's, he's to proclaim these three things, and he's actually to accomplish the setting free. He's to proclaim freedom. He's to proclaim good news to the poor, and he is to set at liberty those who oppress. So Jesus understands his mission first as a ministry of proclamation, and then as a ministry of accomplishing that which he proclaims. And that's what we see him do during the rest of chapter 4. He's faithfully teaching in the synagogues. It's his custom, we're told. Going to the synagogues on the Sabbath and teaching. And as we turn to chapter 5, we find him doing the same thing. But in chapter 5, some new themes get entered into in Luke's gospel. We're going to see a couple of things. First, we're going to see the introduction of specific disciples. Up to this point, we've heard the word spread about Jesus, but we haven't identified any particular disciples. Now, there's kind of an assumed reference in chapter 4 when he heals Simon's mother-in-law, but Simon himself is not introduced. Remember, Luke is writing to Theophilus, who's already heard these things. He's assuming Theophilus has some understanding of who Simon Peter is. But Simon Peter doesn't actually get introduced to us until right here. Another key component of chapter 5, leading into 6, is the introduction of Jesus' opposition, the Pharisees. They're going to show up in the middle of chapter 5, and we're going to get a couple of encounters with them until finally it culminates in chapter 6 with the man with the withered hand, the Sabbath controversy, and then they're going to disappear for a bit. So the the Pharisees, Jesus' opposition, are going to be introduced in this chapter. We're going to see Jesus' crowds that come to him. All these themes get introduced. But most significantly in our text this morning, and don't miss this, we get another title added to who Jesus is. We, We know he's the Messiah. We know already that he is the one that Isaiah 61 spoke of. We know he's the Holy One of God. We got that from the demoniac's mouths, the Son of God. We know he's the Son of the Most High. We've got a lot of titles for him, but this morning, we're going to see, and you see that right there in verse 8, the confession of Peter, that he is Lord. And that confession is is very significant. I think it's kind of the heart of understanding the text, because a little earlier in verse 5, that's not what Peter is calling Jesus. In fact, I think understanding the, the beat and, the, and the, the thrust of this passage is, is understanding the transition as Peter, in verse 5, calls him master or boss, overseer, speaking freely with Jesus, to falling on his face in verse 8 and calling him Lord. Jesus is going to teach Peter, he's going to teach us what it means that he is Lord. And we're going to see how Peter moves from boat owner speaking back, talking freely, to, to worshiper falling on his face. And it all centers around what it means that Christ is Lord. We're going to see the lordship of Christ in a fishing boat, in unexpected places and at unexpected times. So let's read our text, Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, and dive in. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put a little from the land, put out a little from the land, and he sat down and began and taught the people from the boat. 
And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. When he had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. It's a remarkable passage. And what we're really looking at is, is, is Peter begins to understand what it means for Jesus to be Lord, and as Jesus exercises that, that lordship in Peter's life. We're going to look at it in three points. First, verses 1 to 3, we're going to see Christ the great teacher. Christ the great teacher. In fact, I think this beginning three verses is what links five with what came before. Remember, the predominant theme of the majority of chapter 4 is Jesus teaching in the synagogues. He announces, here's my mission. I was sent to proclaim. I was sent to announce and he was sent to accomplish, but the emphasis in four is on the announcing. And what's he doing? He's, he's teaching faithfully. He's, he's going here and he's going there. Whether he gets opposition or whether he gets a warm reception, he's, he's on the move, fulfilling his ministry, being faithful. And that's exactly what we see him doing here. And I just want to draw our attention to three things quickly with Christ, the great teacher. First, another, another component of Luke's gospel gets introduced at this point, and that is an eager crowd. And we've heard the word going out, the word going out in chapter 4 again and again. But here, the logical conclusion of that is a crowd. And this isn't the last time we're going to see crowds. In fact, this crowd that is eagerly pressing in on him will grow so that by the point of Luke 8, verses 20 and 21, when his mother and brothers come to find him, it says that they're desiring to see you and... They could not reach him because of the crowd. Jesus' own family members, unable to get to him because of how dense and how thick the crowd is. Or in chapter 12, 1, we read these remarkable words. In the meantime, there were so many thousands of people that had gathered together that they were trampling on one another. Trampling. That's, this, is, this is where this is headed. Jesus is gathering a crowd. But not only is he gathering a crowd, he's gathering his disciples. And the first of which we're going to see here in chapter 5. A little later in chapter 6, if you look over to chapter 6, verses 12 through 16, we'll have the full list of the 12. And in chapter 5, he first gathers Peter and then Levi or Matthew in chapter 5, 27. And then we get the full list. So Jesus is gathering a crowd, and from that crowd, Jesus is gathering his disciples and apostles. And there's a great and eager crowd. Now, it's interesting, and the next point is what they're eager for. Now, we've seen Jesus work great miracles, and, and last week we saw all the community bringing their sick and their lame with any of their diseases, and Jesus would heal them all. But we also understood from his rebuke at his hometown that a desire primarily for miracles was a wrong desire. A little later in Luke's gospel in chapter 10, you'll say, evil generation seeks a sign. 
And the good news here is look what the crowd is pressing in for. They're pressing in to hear the word of God. Isn't that wonderful? Again and again and again, we don't know how tall Jesus was. We don't know the color of his hair. What we hear again and again and again is, is he spoke the word of God. He is the one who is the word of God, and he speaks the word of God. In chapter 4, the comment about him is they were marveling, verse 22, and speaking well of him because of the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. In John chapter 7, the, the soldiers, temple guard who were sent to arrest Jesus, they, they don't lay a hand on him. Why? When they return, no one ever spoke like this man. And again and again and again, attention is being drawn to the authority and the power of Jesus' word. We've seen that by his word, he commanded the demon out of the demon-possessed man in the synagogue. By his word, he rebuked a severe fever, and it left. What is drawing people to him? It's the word of God. It's the word of God. You know, we, we, we live in a day where we think that the way to draw a crowd is to, to put on great programs or to have high-quality coffee, or, you know, tell lots of jokes. But when God gathers his people, it's always been the same thing they come for, to hear the word of God. And Jesus, throughout Luke's gospel, is continually being said to speak the word of God. In fact, as much as we are so used to that phrase, the word of God, Matthew, Mark, and John only use the phrase once each. 24 times in Luke Acts, the phrase, the word of God shows up. And what we see is it's Jesus speaking the word of God. The words that he speaks are the word of God. And he raises the value and the blessedness of this word of God. In 8, 20 to 21 of Luke, he's told, we already saw his mothers and his brothers are standing outside. He answers, who are then my mother and my brothers? But those who hear the word of God and do it. Jesus referencing what he says, his teaching is the word of God. Or a little later in 11.27, as he gives the, uh, as he receives praise, well, he walks by and a woman in the crowd raised her voice, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. And he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So Jesus is identified as the one who speaks the word of God. This is what characterizes who he is and what he does. But there's a transition that takes place in Acts, whereas Jesus is the source of the word of God in Luke. In Acts... Chapter 4, verse 31, the early church gathers. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. In Acts 12, 24, the word of God increased and multiplied. And so Jesus in Luke is the one who initially is the one who has the word of God, but then the church picks up this commission. And so ideally, hopefully, if, if, if we are doing what we are to do well, if I'm doing right now what I'm supposed to be doing, it's the word of God that is going out. And hopefully that's why you're here. Certainly not for my funny jokes. But we're here, aren't we? For the word of God, that God's word would be shown to us, that it would change us they might feed upon it, that we might speak the word of life to others. And it's just wonderful to see that this crowd is gathering for the right reasons. Other times, crowds will gather around Jesus for the miracles. But here, at least, the crowd is gathering, eager, pressing in, because they want what he's got and what he is, the word of God. And we see, finally, that Jesus continues to be that faithful teacher. 
I mean, up until this point in Luke's gospel, this is really what characterizes him, going about from city to city, preaching, announcing, teaching the good news to the poor. And here this crowd is pressing in, gathering around, and what does he do? He teaches them. And he's kind of innovative. Jesus doesn't have a set formula for his preaching. If you want to try to get lessons on how to preach, it can be difficult because Jesus can teach in a boat, he can teach on a mountain, he can teach on a plane, he can teach in parables. In fact, a little later in chapter 6, we're going to get a full-length sermon of Jesus. Up to this point, we've only seen snippets of his teaching. We've got a full-length sermon, what's frequently called the Sermon on the Plain. It's coming. We don't know what he taught. That's not where the attention's being drawn. We're just being shown that he did. He was faithful. What was his ministry? He was anointed by the Spirit to proclaim and to teach. And what have we seen him do again and again and again? He's doing it. He's fulfilling his ministry. He's being faithful. He gets in a boat. It's rather clever, actually. The water will serve to carry his voice. The slope of the hill leading up from the lake creates a natural um, sort of auditorium, and he can speak and be heard. It's also, again, interesting of the historical accuracy. Luke refers to the Sea of Galilee, which is formerly not a sea. Correctly, it's a lake. Technically, that would be its classification. Then the Lake of Gennesaret was just another name for the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is a faithful teacher. He's a faithful teacher, speaking the word of God. The crowd's coming for the right reason. But, but again, Luke isn't drawing our attention to what he taught. Well, that's coming later in chapter 6. We'll get a full-length sermon. Luke's actually drawing our attention to what happens when the teaching, the formal teaching ends. Because Jesus has just taught a great pressing crowd, but he's got more teaching to do. He's going to do it in a boat, and his audience is going to be Peter. His pupils will be Peter and James and John. And then they're going to get the lesson. He's going to teach them what it means for him to be Lord. That was our question. What does, what does that mean? Well, let's, let's look now at verses 4 through 7, and we see Christ, the master fisherman. Christ, the master fisherman. We've already seen him, Christ, the great teacher. Now Christ, the master fisherman. When he had finished speaking... He said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. Now, let me just start by letting you know, the boats that these people are in are, are sizable boats. They're not little dinghies. I mean, understand this is room in Peter's boat, at least, for four men. There's room for Peter to fall down on his face in front of Jesus in the presence of big, full nets of fish. We don't know how big they were, but they weren't tiny. Four men could be in them with a big, full net of fish and space for Peter to fall down on his face. And and Jesus here, and I want you to notice this, because here's where he starts to challenge Peter. Here's where he starts to assert and teach about what it means for him to be a lord. I want you to notice Christ's bold command. Christ's bold command. Notice Jesus doesn't ask, hey, would it be okay if, or perhaps, he just issues an imperative verb command. First to Peter, the first command, put out into the deep, is to Peter. It's a singular verb. Let down your nets is plural. He's he's addressing Peter, and then he addresses the crew. That's bold. This This is a professional fishing boat. These guys are professional fishermen. They're not fishing for sport or for fun. This is their livelihood, This is their workplace, and Jesus addresses the boss or the captain of the crew, and then he addresses the crew. You, Peter, put out into the deep. The rest of you let down your nets for a catch. Imperative verbs, commanding, taking charge. 
And I want you to notice something. Jesus here is asserting his lordship, not in the area of Peter's weakness, not in an area where Peter doesn't think he knows anything. He's asserting his lordship directly over Peter's strength, over Peter's self-understanding of expertise, isn't he? He's taking charge and giving instructions. In the one area, if you ask Peter, Peter, what do you know? Peter might say, well, I'm a Galilean peasant. I don't know much, but I know how to fish. And clearly, if he's in possession of a sizable boat like this, he's got other people working with him, partners, he's had some success. He's been able to make a livelihood of this. And Jesus just takes charge. He commands the foreman. He commands the crew. He asserts his lordship over not Peter's area of weakness, but over his strength. And, and he gives a command which honestly goes against all practical fishing wisdom. We already see from this. When do these men gather to fish? They're not, they're not fishing for fun. This is their livelihood. They do it at night where, where the sun won't reveal the presence of the fishermen as much. And, and they don't fish in the deep. The whole point of these nets is they go down to the bottom and they scoop the fish up. If you're in the deep, the fish can go deeper still. And so Jesus is, is taking charge, giving instructions counter to the wisdom that Peter has. And this is the one area Peter thinks that he knows what he's doing. So what do we get from that? What does it mean for Christ to be Lord? It means that Jesus gets to tell you and me what to do, even in the areas where we think we are most informed about our particular area of expertise. I mean, just imagine if, if, if Jesus showed up to a carpentry project, and there Phil Hopper is, and he just starts telling him what to do, and it's encountered all the wisdom that Phil has on how to build something, or, or Don Carpenter's doing some wiring, and, you know, connect those wires there. Do, that's what's going on here. Jesus is asserting his lordship over Peter's greatest area of expertise and strength, counter to all of his wisdom. And here's the challenge, right? Peter, will you trust me even in that area? Will you, will you trust Jesus? Will I trust Jesus even in that area where we most think we know what we're talking about? Even if what Jesus says, what his word says, is counter to everything we think we know. That's lordship. That's lordship. Maybe you've got some areas in your life that you think, yeah, Jesus can instruct me on this, this, and this, but I know about this. And Jesus, here with Peter, takes charge of his boat, takes charge of the one thing Peter thinks he knows, he gives commands that run counter to all of his wisdom. But not only does Jesus assert his lordship over Peter's strength, he asserts his lordship at an inopportune time, doesn't he? What's just happened? They've spent an entire night hard at work fishing, and they came up with nothing. Zero. I mean, some of you just know how that feels when you go out fishing for pleasure, for recreation. You catch nothing. Are you excited? Are you happy? No. Not only that, they've been cleaning the nets, hard at work cleaning the nets. Then Jesus says, hey, I'm going to get in your boat, and they've got to stick around for the sermon, for the message. This has been a long night's work, followed by a long morning of Jesus' teaching. Do you think these guys wanted to go home, go, go to bed? I certainly would. And yet Jesus, in this time when they've had a discouraging night, they've been hard at work, they've sat through a long message, presumably, now, there's more work to be done. In fact, one commentator, James Edwards, observes this. Jesus begins Peter's journey to discipleship not by calling him away from his profession first, 
but by challenging him to bolder practice of it. Jesus does not assert his lordship at Peter's weakest point, but at his strongest point, his professional expertise as a fisherman. Nor does Jesus wait for an appropriate mood. Few fishermen endure failure in the art admirably. And people who fish for a living rather than for sport may endure it even less admirably. We need not ask what was going through the mind of a professional fisherman in a foul mood when a non-fisherman orders him to go do again in bad conditions what he's already tried and failed to do in good conditions. You get that? From Peter's understanding of Jesus, he's a carpenter, and he's a prophet, and he's a teacher, but Jesus has no history of being a fisherman. Peter's the fisherman. He's discouraged. It's been a long night. And now this landlubber is telling him to do again what he's already done, except in unfavorable conditions. That's, that's lordship. That's what it means for Christ to be Lord. He gets to order us what to do and when to do it, and there's no area where we, no, 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 Lord, I know better, I know better. Or not now, now's a bad time, I'm kind of tired. Does it mean for Jesus to be Lord? He's Lord over your greatest area of strength. He's Lord in inopportune times, and he demands obedience. Demands obedience. Now, we see Peter's mixed response, don't we? We see Peter's mixed response. He responds by saying in verse 5, Master, a word for overseer or boss, it's a word used in Septuagint to describe some of the Egyptian underlings. It just means somebody who's placed over somebody else. Peter recognizes that Jesus is above him. And that's, as far as it goes, an appropriate title. Peter will call Jesus this again later in the Gospels. But what Jesus is pressing him to see is whether that's all he thinks he is or if he thinks he's more than that. And Peter's response shows the, 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 the duality of his response. Um, Edwards further writes this. <clears throat> Two voices are audible in Peter's reply, the professional fisherman and the fledgling disciple, a man of this world and a man of faith. Peter knows from experience the futility of fishing after sunup when fish can see the nets, and he reminds Jesus, who is considerably less experienced in such matters, of this fact. His final word, however, is not based on his experience, reasonable as it may be, but on the authority of Jesus. Like Mary, who submitted to the angelic herald at the Annunciation in spite of her bewilderment, Peter trusts the word of Jesus in spite of all experience to the contrary. And that for him, as for all believers of all times, is faith. You get that? Peter trusts Jesus' word in spite of all experience to the contrary. In the area that he thinks he knows best, Trust Jesus' word. And that for him, as well as for all believers of all time, is faith. That is faith. And so we see the response of the professional fisherman. This isn't the right time. It's been a long night. We haven't caught anything. We see the response of faith. We see the response of faith. Then we see the miraculous catch. We know this story well, don't we? The, The picture of the boat struggling, the fish filling the nets. Jesus knows what he's talking about, but I want you to understand this. The miraculous catch doesn't show Jesus' skill as a fisherman. I I do believe if Jesus wanted to fish, he would certainly fish perfectly and well. But the the issue is not that Jesus has some sort of insight or tapping into some sort of fishing lore that Peter doesn't have, and actually, this is a much better strategy. 
No, no, this normally doesn't work. And the whole point of the catch is it's miraculous. This is not about who's the better fisherman, who's wiser when it comes to this trade. This is about a sheer assertion of authority. The net's filled with fish because, here's the blank, Jesus is Lord over nature. This isn't about, wow, I've got a lot to learn about fishing and boats from you. Rather, wow, the fish obey your command, and they go where you send them. (laughs) Raw assertion of authority. Jesus is Lord over nature. A little later in chapter 8, he's going to speak to the wind, and it's just going to die down. That's the point of this. In other words, Peter was at one level right. Normally speaking, it's a bad idea to go fishing in broad daylight in deep water, especially when you know the fish aren't around because you had a futile night. Peter's right. The reason this succeeds is not because Peter was wrong on that point. The reason this succeeds is because Jesus is Lord. And you and I may have situations in life where, quite frankly, the prevalent wisdom, apart from a supernatural God who keeps his promises, would be that obeying God would be foolish, would lead to ruin, would lead to calamity. You've got to factor in the supernatural God. This succeeds not because Peter was wrong, but because Jesus was Lord. And he's Lord over nature. And then I imagine as Peter's thinking through this and as he even thinks about how he took charge of his boat, he's Lord over men. He just commands Peter and his boat what to do. This one who commands demons and they obey. This one who commands sickness and it obeys. This one who apparently commands fish, they obey. Jesus is Lord over men. Which brings us then to the climax of this passage. As the boats are overflowing and swamping with fish. And Peter is a professional fisherman. This is when his men need him, right? I mean, this, this catch is so great that they have to call in help. And the penny drops for Peter at this point, doesn't it? I mean, he, it's, he's clearly some sort of fledgling disciple. Clearly, there's some association with Jesus. Jesus has been in his home. He healed his mother-in-law. We know from John's gospel in chapter 1 that when Peter went out to be baptized by John the Baptist, he encountered Jesus there. Peter's had experience with, with Jesus, and he's come to call him master here. But the penny hasn't fully dropped. Now, maybe... You wonder why why this miracle is so convincing to Peter. Why not commanding the fever over his mother-in-law? Well, I don't know. Maybe it's because Peter's not a doctor. He doesn't know much about that. It's truly impressive. But here, when Jesus confronts him and challenges him and presses him in the one area he feels he knows something about, and he responds in faith against all of, his, all of his reason, all of his common sense, all of his experience, and he obeys and he trusts Jesus, and he sees what happened. The penny drops, and he gets it. And what Jesus has been saying about who he is, the implications of one who can command fevers and demons and fish, it drops. And he gets, point three, Christ, the sovereign fisher of men. Christ, the sovereign fisher of men. When Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees. He lets go of the nets. Stops pulling in fish. And he says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Now, these are professional fishermen. They know this type of stuff doesn't happen. It's not like every once in a while you get a really big catch like this. This is above and beyond Anything he'd ever seen. There's only a supernatural account can 
explain this, can account for this. What we see is Peter's repentance. Peter's repentance. That's another characteristic. What does it mean for Jesus to be Lord? Not only does it entail beliefs about him, but coming to the belief that Jesus is Lord necessarily involves me changing some beliefs about me. We see that in Peter here. First, he confesses his own sinfulness and unworthiness. He confesses his own sinfulness and unworthiness. Because to know that Jesus is Lord is to know that he is holy and is to know that I am not. To know that Jesus is Lord is to know that he is holy and I am not. And he gets it and he understands This is the Son of God. This is the Holy One of God. The penny drops, it clicks, he gets it, and he comes to the belief that Jesus is Lord, a title that that the New Testament in translating the Hebrew Old Testament consistently reserves for God's covenant name, Yahweh. When you read your New Testament Bibles, consistently they translate that Hebrew word, Yahweh, as Lord. And it's already occurred over 20 times in Luke's Gospel. the, The implications are clear. He's calling him God. We get that from the title. We get that from falling on his face. We get that from his own response. In fact, turn, turn to Isaiah chapter five, 6. Isaiah chapter 6. There's a similar encounter here, and I want you to get this. One of the ways we can know that we have sincerely and truly come to faith in Jesus, Jesus as Lord, is the response that has to us. Because what you see again and again and again in Scripture is people come to the realization of who God is, really, The response is always the same. Famous passage, Isaiah 6. We'll start in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Or you think of the Apostle John in the opening chapter of of Revelation when he sees the glorified Christ standing in front of him. This is the Apostle who during the Last Supper reclined with his head in Jesus' side. And he sees the Lord of glory, and he does not run up to him and give him a high five. He falls on his face as if dead. And again and again, I could show you more and more examples. As people come to grips and they start to grasp who it is they're dealing with, implicitly, if he's holy, I am not. If you think God is holy and don't have a grasp on your own sinfulness, my friend, you are deceived. You know nothing of God's holiness if you know nothing of your own sinfulness. In fact, the more I study my Bible, the more I learn of who God is, the more I become aware of how unlike him I am. How unholy I am. And Peter confesses with no excuses, with no no reservation, his own sinfulness because he's, he's come to grasp something about the one he is in front of. Secondly, he prostrates himself before the Lord Jesus. That's that's just surrender. That's just I give up. You win. 
Earlier in the narrative, Peter was dialoguing back and forth. A little, little put. Hey, we've been at this all night, but okay. Here, there's, there's none of that. There's just, he falls down on his face in front of Jesus. He surrenders, gives up. You win. I yield. And he's filled with holy fear. This is kind of cool. So far in, in Luke's gospel, we've seen a number of people afraid as they encounter the holy. Just holy angels, right? Gabriel shows up to Zechariah the priest, and what do we read? Zechariah is full of fear. And then the Gabriel, Gabriel, angel Gabriel shows up to Mary, and she is filled with fear. And then the angel shows up to the shepherds in chapter 2, and they are sore afraid. That's the King James, right? They're sore afraid. And now... After three examples of people encountering the holy, we see the exact same thing happening to Peter. He's full of fear. Which is a good thing, because Proverbs 1.7 tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Jesus is teaching him something about what it means for him to be Lord. And part of what it means for Jesus to be Lord is to understand that I am not. He is holy. I am not. I am sinful. He is Lord, therefore I surrender and yield. And to be filled with the fear of the Lord. So there's Peter, prostrate in front of Jesus, calling him Lord, recognizing his own sinfulness. I, I don't des- you should go somewhere else. I don't deserve this. I'm not worthy. You should, you should really leave. And then we see Peter's recommissioning. And I want you to see the comfort that Jesus speaks to Peter's fear. Jesus speaks comfort to Peter's fear. Now, that's the scary moment, right? We're hardwired to press back, to defend ourselves. We don't like yielding. We don't like turning over and exposing our, our belly. We don't like throwing ourselves at someone's mercy. Why? Well, in the past, in our lives, when we've done that. People have struck us when we're down. People have kicked us when we roll over. What will Jesus do now that Peter has given up any pretenses of knowing what he's talking about? You're right. Even in the area that I think I know most, I know nothing. You are Lord, and I am sinful. What does Jesus do? Does he kick him? Does he rebuke him? Does he smite him? No, he, he, he comforts him. And again, the same words found in the angel's mouth. May phobo, fear not spoken first by Gabriel to Zechariah, then to Mary, and then the angel to the shepherds, now is in Jesus' mouth. Because as we sing and as we know from Psalm 51, does God ever despise a broken spirit and a contrite heart? No. Broken spirit and a contrite heart, you will not despise, O Lord. As as, as counterintuitive as, as this may be to our experience, when we humble ourselves, when we surrender, when we roll over, when we say, Lord, I yield, I'm sinful, you are not, you're the Lord, I am not, I don't deserve anything from you. He speaks comfort, doesn't he? He doesn't cast us away then. He draws near. Jesus comforts Peter. And then, in an astonishing display of his own lordship, Jesus changes Peter's entire identity. Peter's a professional fisherman. And here, what does it mean for Jesus to be Lord? Jesus can look at somebody who spent his entire life learning a trade, learning a skill, perfecting it, laboring at it, and say, because I'm Lord and you're mine, that's not what you're going to be doing anymore. And that's bold, right? I mean, we look at 
how great of a promotion it is. He gets to go from doing this, this labor to doing something of eternal consequence. But don't miss the exercise of lordship. I mean, can you think of any person alive today who could just walk up to you and say, I know that you've been training and doing this for a living all your life, but you won't be doing that anymore now. <laughs> you know, my, my college loans may differ. You know, um, Jesus walks up. From now on, you're doing something entirely different. Because he's Lord. He has the authority because he owns Peter. He owns us, and he can do with us as he pleases. And this is true for all believers in some respect. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed. The new has come. And, and, and Peter will go from a fisherman of fish to a fisherman of men. What does that mean? Well, he's going to be joining Jesus in this message of proclamation. He's going to be joining Jesus in announcing. We see him in the rest of Luke's gospel as he takes more and more of a, of a major supporting role. He's, he's fishing for men by announcing the word of God. And in Acts chapter 2, when he stands before an assembled multitude of Jews and proselytes who come to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost, how does he end his sermon to them? It was 3,000 people come to faith. Verse 36, he says, Let all the house of Israel know therefore for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ this Jesus whom you crucified. Is anything Peter knows for certain by the time Acts 2 rolls around? He is Lord, and he is Christ, and he announces that. And 3,000 received the word and added to their number that day. He would indeed go on to be a great fisher of men. So, let's look now finally at Peter's response, at Peter's response. And I just want to highlight two things here. You might be tempted to think if it were me, perhaps, and I'm a professional fisherman, and in one night I've got the greatest catch I've ever had, ever. Okay, Jesus, I might say, I'll be a fisherman, but can we come back maybe once a week and do this some more? There's some money to be made here, you know? The bills aren't going to pay for themselves. What does he do? He forsakes it. He's had the greatest success in his earthly vocation he has ever had and he just walks away from it and when they brought their boats back to land they left everything and followed him what's it mean for jesus to be lord it means being willing to leave everything and follow him now, to turn, to, turn to Luke chapter 9 as we work through these last two points, because you might be tempted to think, well, this is an individual case. Jesus is personally appearing to Simon. He's giving him personal commands. And so maybe this is a special case. How do we know that the demands of Jesus on Peter, as he calls him to be a disciple and an apostle, are the same demands that Jesus gives to us? Well, because we'll see the exact same Demands and response that Jesus gives to Peter are given a few chapters later broadly to everyone. Okay? So the first point is this. What does it mean that Jesus is Lord? What does it mean to come to grips with that? It means a total commitment to Christ. A total commitment to Christ. And Jesus demands that of all. Look, look in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. He said to 
all. Not just the disciples, not just the apostles. This is what Jesus said to, this is what Jesus says to you and me. If anyone would come up after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. By again, notice again, the stakes are not, do you want to be a disciple? As if you can be saved and not be a disciple. Jesus casts the stakes of your willingness to totally commit to him as life and death, heaven and hell. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Jesus demands of Peter, and Jesus demands of all, and Jesus demands of you and me total commitment. In fact, a little later, he warns the crowds in chapter 14. Stay here in in 9. But in 14.33, he warns the crowds to count the cost and then says plainly, therefore, any of you, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. What does it mean for Jesus to be Lord? It means a total commitment, not a partial commitment, not a sort of commitment. Again and again, we see Jesus take people who are somewhere in between and, and force the resolution, whether it's in Nazareth where they're speaking well of him, but there's a carpenter's son, and he forces the resolution to the point where they want to kill him. And here is a half-hearted follower. who He's master, he's boss, but he's still figuring things through, and Jesus takes him head on. I mean, think about it. You might think, let's wait till he's well-rested. Let's wait till he's had a good night's sleep. Let's wait till he's in a good mood. No, precisely when he's frustrated and tired and failed, Jesus takes him head-on in the area that he thinks he's most expert in. Because for Jesus to be Lord, he gets to do what he wants, when he wants, in any area of your life, in my life. Total commitment. And also, an immediate commitment. An immediate commitment, a little later in Luke 9. And the reason I'm going to Luke 9 is, like I said, to demonstrate that these, these characteristics of discipleship and lordship found here with Peter are for all of us. And we can't say, well, this is just a special circumstance. This is about becoming an apostle. Look, look, look at chat, verse 57 of chapter 9. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to rest his head. To another he said, Follow me. And he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said, Let the dead bury the dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said to him, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And he said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. What does it mean for Jesus to be Lord? What does he demand as Lord? He demands total commitment, and he demands immediate commitment. If you're on the fence, if you're, I'm not sure what I make of this Jesus, I like him. Understand, the living Christ commands, according to Paul in Acts, all men everywhere to repentance. The living Christ claims you, claims me. He's bought you, he made you, he upholds you with his word, and he is kind, and he is meek, and he speaks peace, but he requires total allegiance, immediate commitment. Now, we've seen what happens when people reject Christ, and we've seen in Luke's gospel now what happens when people yield to this. 
as frightening as that may be, as intimidating as that may be, as much as you may not feel like you want a Lord in your life, this is a kind Lord. This is a good Lord. When, when Peter trusts Jesus' lordship, apart from all of his known wisdom, good things happen. Now, there will be suffering. Peter will eventually be led to be crucified because the same Lord who redefined his life here, at the end of John's gospel, will say to him, when you grow old, someone else will dress you and take you where you do not want to go. And he said this in a manner of speaking of the way in which Peter would die. The lordship of Christ doesn't always mean that he's leading us to riches and prosperity. But it does mean he's taking care of us. It does mean he loves us. But, but he doesn't equivocate on these terms again and again and again. Think of the rich young ruler. Sell your, either he's Lord and he gets to command us and when he says jump, we jump and in midair say how high. Or he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord and not do what I say? And Peter understood him as boss and Jesus in his second lesson, he taught the multitudes, but then he has a, specific lesson for Peter and his, his co-workers. Teaches them and he teaches us what it means for him to be Lord. And that's really, I think, the challenge for us. Do you understand him? Do you confess him as Lord? And when you confess him as Lord, is part of that confession the recognition of your own non-lordship? I'm not boss, because I'm the sinful one. I'm not in charge. And even those areas that I think that I know the most if his word says different, he's right and I'm wrong. That's the question I always want to ask people when, I talk, when they talk about biblical authority. No one has any problem accepting the Bible on the things you already agree with, right? You know, I always thought that's good. God and I think the same way. The real challenge of biblical authority, what do you do with those passages that most challenge everything you think you know? Challenge everything you think is true and right and good. What then? Who's Lord? My own judgment, my own logic, my own sense of what's right, or is the living God Lord? That's, that's, that's part of the question. Or, or what about when God commands us to act a certain way? And are we tempted to say, well, yes, in most places, I'm willing to love my neighbor and prefer others. But you've got to understand, in the business world, it's dog eat dog, and if you do that, you're going to get trampled on. Who's Lord? Who's Lord? That, that's the question. When the way you arrange your marriage, the way you rear your children. A lot of wisdom in the world. Who's Lord? That's the challenge. He, he, there's, no, there's no area that's hands off for Jesus. Or as R.C. Sproul likes to say, there, there are no maverick molecules in the universe. There's not a single atom in all of creation to which the resurrected Lord does not say, Mine. And that's what it means. And that's the challenge we have to come to face with. I'm going to call the choir up. They've been working on a doxology. I just want to leave you pondering that. If you come to the Lord Jesus with a broken spirit and a contrite heart, if you come confessing your own unworthiness, if you come willing to trust him, even though what he says may honestly not make much sense, you will find him to be a kind and loving Savior But, but understand this, as kind and as gentle as he is, he does not equivocate on these points. He does not negotiate on terms. He is Lord or he is nothing. And believe me, one day, every tongue will confess. Yours, mine, the demons, the inhabitants of hell, the stars, the trees, the mountains will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The, the blessing is doing it now.
Let's, let's have the choir sing a doxology. <laughs>